This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Not too far to go until Thanksgiving. Turkey and gravy and cranberries and kids coming home and doing laundry from college. But that might be a problem, right? Coronavirus cases surging across the country. College students coming home could bring COVID with them. So we will talk about how to try and make that weekend a safe one. Are these the, the large or the small cranberries? These are the, you know what? This is a, a secret. I like the gross, looks like a can. Oh, the, really? The one in the yeah. can? And the, so my family actually has two. They have real cranberry sauce. Right. And then there's one that they leave in the shape of the can just for me at the end of the table. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Uh, news of uh, news of Pfizer's coronavirus vaccine has a lot of people excited in the travel and tourism world. So we'll get into how quickly this industry can bounce back. And with a new president taking over, Joe Biden, will the federal government have a completely different response to COVID? The pandemic has hit college sports hard. Yes, football is still being played, but there are a lot of other athletes wondering when they can compete again. And this could hit the Olympics. But we start with the virus and Thanksgiving and college students. Dr. Anita Barkin is co-chair of the American College Health Association, the COVID-19 task force. So, doctor, what can be done to make sure college kids don't bring the virus home and then spread it around there? What do we think about Thanksgiving break and how do we how do we think about mitigation strategies? And a lot of that um, is dependent upon whether the on-campus experience will continue past the Thanksgiving break. If it's going, if it's not going to continue past Thanksgiving break and the, the on-campus experience is going to conclude at Thanksgiving and students will be going home um, for, uh, for the, the winter holiday break, uh, waiting for the spring term to, to, to begin, then we look at um, you know, safety precautions related to traveling to their home and then how they um, integrate into their uh, family um, uh, community and community once they arrive. However, for schools that plan to continue the on-campus experience after Thanksgiving break, uh, we are um, suggesting that those schools encourage students to stay on campus and have a virtual Thanksgiving celebration with their family and have a, uh, a Friendsgiving event um, on campus and that they have uh, you know, the opportunity to dine with friends in a well-ventilated or outdoor space with access to masks and a physically distanced dining um, arrangement. So we would actually encourage those students to really uh, you know, think about staying on campus for for a brief break like Thanksgiving for the very issues that you have identified that um, we know are related to traveling uh, back and forth from one community to another. Well, of course, it isn't just traveling. Uh, you know, if you're a parent and your kid is in school, uh, you know, there's a good chance or at least a possibility that they may have gotten infected while on campus. So maybe you don't really want them coming back unless they've gotten tested. Would that be something that parents or maybe the school should be doing is to insist that if a student wants to go back uh, and visit with their folks, that maybe they ought to get tested before they leave? 
Yes, I, I think that if, if in conversation with the family, the decision is that they want them to come home, that testing before leaving the campus community is a reasonable uh, and solid strategy. Now, I will offer this caveat. <laughs> a, um, a test is only an indication of your status at one point in time. And so you could have a false negative test uh, if you were exposed close to the time of the testing event and you're ready to leave to go home. Um, you could also, uh, you know, pick the, the virus up in your travels, depending on the mode of transportation and the number of stops and what that travel experience looks like. But testing before you leave, no before you go, is what, as we put it in our doc in our in our document uh, on considerations for institutions of higher education as students return home that ACHA has on on their website uh, is a very reasonable strategy now when once one gets home as i said because you can't um, you know you can't pin all of your um, decision making on the basis of one test you still need to do all of those things that um, are recommended including uh, wearing a face mask, physically distancing uh, from uh, folks, and um, certainly using hand hygiene, good hand hygiene, uh, and wiping surfaces, common uh, you know, surfaces that uh, lots of people touch. Yeah, all the things we're supposed to be doing. Dr. Anita Barkin, co-chair, American College Health Association, the uh, COVID-19 task force. Doctor, thanks. Pfizer's coronavirus vaccine has airlines, cruise ships, and hotels really excited. Lots of people are, well, they're anxious to travel again, and a vaccine will make them more comfortable to do so. Will the recovery be a quick one? Joe Schwederman is professor of public services at DePaul University. He uh, talked about the optimism with WBBM's Cisco Cotto. Not only air travel, but we're seeing hotels and even restaurants and cruises uh, uh, feel some optimism here. And I think uh, uh, it's kind of a one-two punch where we have rapid testing getting better all the time. And, of course, this new vaccine, and that uh, could be a game changer. And when we say game changer, I mean, we're not talking about the near term, right? Because it'll be a while before the vaccine is in wide circulation. I think that's right. And you, know, you really, you look at how things play out. You, you pick a date, you think something's going to happen, and then you push it back three months. But but it does appear this 90% effectiveness is, is quite good news for the airlines that people, uh, uh, you know, perhaps uh, by springtime, that we may have a kind of a, a cultural shift in how people view the risk of air travel. And uh, uh, there's a sense that, um, you know, everybody may not take the vaccine, but the people that are in the travel sector will have a lot of incentive to uh, take advantage. And so airlines are uh, trying to assess how their schedules are going to look for spring and summer. They've already committed to Christmas mostly, and uh, there's optimism right now. When it comes to the airlines, they are talking about maybe even using bigger planes here uh, around the holidays. Is there a chance that just the psychological boost from the idea of a vaccine on the way, that, that, that could end up getting people to travel more? It is. I mean, it really is a, a mental, uh, 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 really, conundrum that people have, that their friends aren't traveling, they're not traveling, uh, they've been told not to travel. And I think something's going to start clicking when there's more stories of people back in the air taking vacations. Of course, we're not, we're not there yet. We still have lockdowns. 
Uh, but just in the last two weeks, uh, we're seeing more optimism about uh, the Christmas travel season. United added some flights and other airlines are beefing up uh, travel. And that may bode well with the vaccine and a sense of, uh, <clears throat> sense of optimism among consumers. That, uh, that could play out quite nicely. And that's really what they need, right? When you look at the uh, the travel, especially for airlines and hotels, they just, they've been hammered and it hasn't rebounded like they need it to be. It really hasn't. And we were uh, wrong in the fall when we thought uh, there would be a steady build and it's not taking that. It's, it's a roller coaster where things actually came down a little bit with a second wave. Uh, but now we seem to be through that. And with the rapid testing uh, uh, being used on some international flights, airlines are really getting good practice understanding how they can uh, sort of manage the risk. And uh, that's uh, likely to be expanded to additional routes, some shorter haul routes uh, where people can go to the airport and be have assurance that the plane is, is COVID-free. And with the vaccine, you know, perhaps next summer we'll start to see travel, not where it was historically, but maybe at uh, 75% of pre-COVID, and that would be good news. And it's something that doesn't get talked about a lot. I mean, in general, air travel is safe even today. I mean, is, is that correct? You just don't hear of these outbreaks on airplanes. Yes, the airlines have avoided any sort of really negative publicity, and I think the evidence is becoming clear that airplanes are not high-risk environments. Of course, uh, nothing's as safe as staying at home and, and distancing uh, the full six feet. You know, but apart from that, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of attention about cruises and about outbreaks on uh, certain college campuses. That hasn't happened with air travel. And I think it's uh, a combination of the air filtration, the very orderly manner in which uh, uh, the boarding and seating is happening. And, uh, you know, so people are taking notice. Thanks so much, Joe Schwederman. Coming up after a short break, will the new boss be the same as the old boss when it comes to fighting the coronavirus? Joe Biden will take over as president in January. He's already getting to work on fighting the pandemic by putting together a new coronavirus task force. But will the changes that he'll make actually work? We could be just so deep into this, maybe there's not much he can do. Or is there? Dr. Erwin Redlener, director of the Pandemic Resource and Response Initiative, also member of the president-elect's Public Health Advisory Committee. So, doctor, uh, federal government's slow to move sometimes. Is it going to take time to switch up the strategy? There's actually not that many tools that we have at our disposal to deal with this particular crisis. But what we do have has been largely ignored or undermined by uh, President Trump and his administration over the last number of months since this whole uh, disaster began. So um, I do think, though, there's a lot to be done in terms of having, let's say, a very consistent, strong message from the federal government about what needs to be done. And of course, since we live in a federalist society, which is uh, most of the time really a good thing, uh, but the federal government cannot order uh, governors or mayors to do anything particularly, but they can have strong, consistent messaging that's based on science and uh, evidence-based uh, principles. And I think that's one of the things that's been lacking uh, for many, many months now since this uh, uh, crisis began. So, yeah, so what we need to do is to focus on the message of uh, really encouraging people to wear masks, to keep distancing, use hand hygiene, and make sure they're not uh, finding themselves in crowded room with poor ventilation. Uh, other than that, since we don't have a vaccine yet, we don't have uh, specific medications yet uh, available to treat people as outpatients. Uh, we're stuck with just those things that I, that I mentioned. 
Um, I think it'll get better, but in the meantime, we're experiencing a excruciatingly severe uh, outbreak right now that's gonna cause a lot of cases, maybe up to 200,000 or more cases per day in the next couple of weeks. And, um, you know, lots more hospitalizations and fatalities. So a lot of challenges that uh, the new administration is going to have to tackle. But here's the problem. A lot of those uh, cases are, they're not all in, in, in red states. They're not all in states that have been resistant to getting out the message of wearing masks and social distancing. California, sure. where, where we are now in the state of California. I mean, you know, the governor here has been pretty consistent. Wear a mask. Keep your distance. And, you know, we still don't have a handle on it here. So what more can you tell people? What more can uh, President-elect Biden tell people to convince yeah. those who are just resistant to doing this that they need to do it? Right. So this is not really an issue of uh, red states or blue states right now. So what we've had, though, is a president who's been incredibly misleading about what works and what doesn't work. You know, he's been, as you well know, uh, resistant to the idea of wearing masks. He's been mocking people that wear masks, including President-elect uh, uh, Biden. And uh, he's created a, uh, a sense of mass confusion around the country. This is, again, not uh, just in one state or another. And by the way, California does not live in, a, in the Californians are not in a bubble, nor are New Yorkers or Alabamans or so on. So we all have, a, there's a lot of uh, cross traveling and uh, people coming from other places. So it's really now a matter of, do we have somebody uh, in office who's gonna be directing his federal agencies to have a, a consistent message and a believable message? I, I need to remind you that uh, Donald Trump was documented as having told at least 20 to 25,000 lies since the beginning of his administration and has been extremely unhelpful in getting out a message about wearing masks. And that has really uh, destabilized a sense of confidence in messages from the federal government. So one of the things that Biden must do, he needs to restore uh, a sense of, uh, of credibility from the federal in the federal government by the American public. And this should be something that's a message for every single state and every single citizen. But I don't really blame people who've been confused of seeing the president at his mass rallies, not wearing a mask and other people crowded together shoulder to shoulder without masks or safe distancing. Uh, the White House itself has become a hotbed, a super spreader location. Uh, I mean, it's just been out of control. And I think that's, that's the thing that's going to have to be most importantly uh, adjust, uh, addressed and fixed by uh, the incoming administration. Is there something that they, the current administration, has done that could benefit this Biden team? I mean, if there is a plan drawn up to have, you know, the military roll out and set up shop yeah, where you course. can drive through and get the vaccine. Yeah, sure. Give me the paper. Let's take this and run with it. Yeah, of course. So what should happen? And, and actually, that's what's supposed to happen during a transition. But, you know, the news over the last couple of days is that the president has ordered the uh, GSA, the General Services Administration, which is responsible for funding transition, to slow down and not to uh, to give the appropriate access to the funding and the uh, other operational needs that the transition team needs so that those specific plans you're talking about are vital for Americans to know about and for the White House to incorporate. There's lots of good plans that have been cooked up in the Trump administration, but they're under wraps. And right now they're not accessible to the incoming team. And that's kind of unconscionable. And I really hope that uh, we see an end to that resistance uh, sooner rather than later. 
Dr. Erwin Redlener directs the Pandemic Resource and Response Initiative at Columbia, a member of the President-elect's Public Health Advisory Committee. The coronavirus has left a lot of college athletes wondering when they can compete again. Football happening, but other sports that would normally compete right now aren't in action, like, well, like women's volleyball and men's water polo. Maybe this even has an impact on next year's Olympics if they don't get postponed again. They're already late. Karen Weaver, college athletics expert and professor at the University of Pennsylvania. She was on with KYW's Matt Leon about college sports, the Olympics, and, yep, the pandemic. At the biggest level, we've survived at least September and some of October. But looking just last night, we've got 10 college football games this last week that have not been able to be played because of COVID outbreaks. At Utah, we've got a, a, we've almost got an entire uh, roster below the number of 53, which is the number you have to have standing on the sidelines to play a game. So we're starting to see some of these cumulative effects. And, and, and Cal Berkeley, for example, is sidelined because their city's testing protocol and COVID gathering protocol are so much stricter than other parts of the West Coast. So it's been bumpy for sure, but I, I don't think that we, if we just focus on how many games were played or how many sports were cut, we're gonna get the whole picture. There have been a lot of furloughs and layoffs and every one of those I'm sure for each department feels like death by a thousand cuts. Because you don't hire people and employ them full time or create those positions unless they add value in some way to your organization. So if I'm a coach of an Olympic sport, even if my sport doesn't get cut, I might I might lose an athletic communication specialist or I might lose a digital media coordinator. I might lose uh, uh, somebody who is um, in the training room and works, does physical therapy. And each one of those uh, things are, are people who are part of my team as well. So when you're a coach and you're looking at recruiting, you want to be able to tell your recruits, I've got everything possible to make you successful. And when you lose people like this, you, you feel as a coach, how can I still retain that level of success, even if my sport remains? Talking about those Olympic programs we've seen cut, though, we have seen a lot of them cut throughout the country. And when we say Olympic sports, we're talking sports like fencing. We're talking field hockey. We're talking wrestling. You know, these are not the – I mean, wrestling's big, really big in some markets. But overall, these are not the, the big revenue generators. How devastating are these cuts to these sport communities? Because these are, you know, kind of niche groups that really are funneled into these into these different sports. So – how much does losing these programs hurt? Well, when you look at the total number of athletes who, who play in college, I would argue that almost 90% or more are the are fall under this group of non-revenue and mostly Olympic sports. Because, you know, football has a certain number and basketball has a certain number, but everything else is a non-revenue sport. So fundamentally, you're talking about the experience for all of those athletes from Division One to Division Three. Uh, even to community colleges and NAIA. So there's a collective pipeline that exists for all of those sports that at the youth sports level is focused on getting into college or getting a college scholarship. And then from there, the Olympics have used colleges in many sports to find the best of the best talent to then represent the United States. 
So if you pull, start to pull college programs out of the middle of those two strings, you've got youth sports, then you've got the Olympics, who's going to fill in the gap? And I know we love to watch the Olympics every four years. We love to see Americans win in track and field and swimming, in, in fencing and badminton, all of these areas. Well, there's very few places to develop those that talent where the facilities are as good as they are in some of these colleges. I'll give you an example. I wrote about this. The University of Minnesota was trying to drop men's indoor and outdoor track and field two years after building a $19 million state-of-the-art track facility. And it just it doesn't make sense when you look at the investment that they've already made. And yet, when you look at COVID-19 and all the impact of losing television revenue, the increased costs of testing and tracing and cardiac testing, they're trying to look for every million dollars they can find. But even in dropping sports like track and field, you only lose, you only gain maybe $2 million out of a $130 million budget. It doesn't get you there. So that's the thing that's not made sense to people who are impacted. They're like, wait a minute, we don't cost that much. So why are we taking the brunt here? You know? And you kind of mentioned this, the important role colleges play. Are there other organizations, groups that maybe play a role in the development in a lot of these sports that we could see try to fill in the vacuum or in some sport cases, is there no one currently available that could, could help, you know, push along athletes on this track if college programs are cut? So the, the USOPC, the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, is chartered to develop um, sport organizations uh, for the United States and then create and select teams that will represent the United States in the Olympic Games. So how, how do those groups go about doing it? Well, generally, they have competitions and they, they provide competitions where, let's say, it's the Olympic trials. And that's where uh, you can go and, and get your best 800 meter runner or your best high jumper. But they have little less to do with what goes into getting that athlete ready for that competition. Same thing in my sport, which was field hockey. You have uh, USA field hockey has developmental training camps, but there's nothing as comprehensive as the club, high school, and college system to really develop a wide range of athletes, not just to select few. Because how it's not easy to identify the best of the best when they're eight, nine, 10 years old. You need more time for them to develop. So each sport has its own pipeline, but many times those pipelines aren't deep. Uh, some sports like swimming, for sure, are deep. USA Basketball is deep. But other sports just don't have the resources because of the Olympic funding model to really take over for what colleges have provided, at least at this point. Getting over COVID is bad enough with all the physical health problems, but now we are learning about mental health issues. Researchers from Oxford University found 20% of those infected with the coronavirus are diagnosed with a psychiatric disorder within 90 days. Now, those include anxiety, uh, depression, insomnia. The study also found that people with a pre-existing mental illness were 65% more likely to be diagnosed with COVID-19 than those without. 
One psychiatrist says stresses connected to the pandemic, along with the physical effects of the illness, can lead to things like depression. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. So they leave the, the cranberry sauce in the shape of the can. Yeah. It's just kind of like they just shove it towards me. Like, here, here, you, like I'm a pariah, you know? And then what do you do? I mean, do you like oh, I slice it? Oh, I slice it into thin can circular slices and eat it. The things you learn on it's this It's good. Podcast. I will not apologize. <laughs>